as I said, continuing this theme, we're calling the one, and you may have noticed, uh, O'Dallas has already referred to it. Um, I'd like us to explore the idea, in my opinion, that Christmas, one of the things it certainly reminds us of is that Christmas is a reminder that Jesus is the one we need. He is the one we need. There's no question about it in my mind in terms of what the scriptures say. And I think this is important for us to, to recognize or to grapple with at a certain level because a lot of times for us, you know, and I've, I've talked to a number of people throughout my years in different, you know, walks of life, different uh, religious affiliations, different paths that they have come from. And inevitably the conversation towards, it, it turns towards the things of God. And I'll tell you, the truth is, I haven't met um, a whole lot of people. I'm sure they exist, but I personally haven't had a whole lot of interaction with, with people who would say, you know what, that they are a, comp- they would say, I, I am just a total atheist. I don't believe there is no, there, I, I believe there's zero existence of God. I haven't met a whole lot. I'm sure they exist. I've read of authors and things of that nature, but the, most of the interactions I've had I've been with people who, that, that actually isn't quite necessarily a, a, a leap to imagine that there might be somebody stronger and bigger and more intelligent and more capable than us. Uh, isn't necessarily that huge of a, of a leap of faith necessarily. Now, I think that makes sense to me. I think it makes sense because, well, nature in itself shows us that there are things bigger than us. I think that's why the, the mountains that we are surrounded by, especially so close to San Francisco, something about them, they just kind of take our breath away if we allow them to, you know. There is something about the, the wilderness and seeing the enormity of creation that kind of just shows us that there are things much bigger than us. I think this is also why we are fascinated with the wildlife, because we, we understand there are beings much stronger than us. There's something majestic about seeing an animal, and we, we, we do it. We travel to go see safaris, or we see them in, a more, uh, in their own habitat, or we like to see them in a more safer environment, but something about them compels us. They are, they're stronger, they're, they're, they're faster, they're more capable of us, and Something about that just it draws us. We, we, we can see it. It is possible. It's all around us. In fact, you know, there was uh, this video my wife showed me, uh, I think a week ago or so. We were just, uh, you know, she was kind of scrolling through Facebook, and there was this video and, uh, of the safari that was, I'm not sure exactly where in Africa, and they were making their way, and they saw a leopard, which is a rare thing to see in the, in the middle of the day. And they saw a leopard walking down the safari and uh, the video said, you know, you could hear everybody kind of just ooing and aahing and you could hear the snapping of the pictures like, you know, and everybody's capturing the moment and the leopard gets closer to the safari van and it gets a little quieter and then the leopard gets, get, disappears and people are wondering where the leopard is and all of a sudden the leopard's on the van, <laughs> standing right there. In the video, you, you could start to see the stabilization software is malfunctioning, you know, uh, it, it's, right? Because the leopard is staring at the, uh, the person and it's just so quiet. And I'm not sure exactly how much time passed because they clearly cut the video, but the leopard stood there, then crouched down, sat there, then ended up lying there. <laughs> And the entire time, the, the van is just 
I mean, you could hear a pin drop. Because they understood. One swipe. One wrong move. Something we understand to meet something, someone, some uh, being stronger than us. It's not hard for us. I was reminded years ago, I, um, when I was working with students, we would take them once a year, we'd go to this camp away in the woods, away from the city, and other groups would come with us. And there was this one group that had students primarily from the inner city. And we were sitting there, and a lot of these students had never actually left the inner city. But there was a rallying, there was a coalition to be able to fundraise for them and send them to camp, and, and they, they were there. And I remember this one evening, we, we were sitting around a campfire and just talking, singing songs, and when the fire died down, the, the group, all of us, looked up. And we know this. We know this. We know that if we leave the city lights, you see the night sky. But to see this through the eyes of a, of a youth who has never left the city lights, wow, what is that? You could see the expansiveness of the night, the canvas of the stars, and to grasp how enormous the universe actually is. It's breathtaking. It's not hard for us. Because to imagine that there might be a being larger than us, see, all of creation speaks of it. That's not the leap. When we see it, we, we are recognizing at the same time, if that is that big, we are actually quite small. And a lot of times when I have these conversations with different people, again, the, the conversation turns towards not does God exist, but if God exists, the inevitable turn, the concern becomes, does he care? Is he good? Is he trustworthy? If he does exist, is he safe? As we know, when we meet somebody more powerful, something more stronger, something bigger, that is the question we start asking. I remember asking that question when I first decided I wanted to learn how to surf. And I decided to go for this wave that was several times larger than me. I remember catching it, luckily, I don't know how. I remember going down it, screaming at a very high pitch. <laughs> and feeling the enormous power underneath me. And on one hand, it, it captured me. It gave me an adrenaline. It was, it was, it was intoxicating. It, was, it pulled me in. And on the other hand, it was terrifying because I knew this that is so powerful and uncontrollable. I can do nothing to control it is also rather unsafe. And if we come to terms with the reality, the truth of the matter is that our heart is much more fragile than we'd like to admit. Our internal beings is so easily wounded. <clears throat> we, we are sensitive. It's what makes intimacy difficult, by the way. It's, it's why relationships are sometimes so hard, because once people start to discover how fragile we are, we get afraid. And if we don't 
if we wrestle with this idea that if there is a God, we wonder if he is good, and we at the same time discover our own fragility, inevitably what ends up happening, one of the destination points of that wrestling point is we get to the place where we say, yes, I might be fragile, but you know what? Then if that is true, then I must be my own defender. I must protect myself, and I must fight for myself. Because I am all I have. And I'd like to suggest that that way of life, it leads to radical insecurity because we quickly find out that um, it is difficult to protect and defend against things that are not in our control. And this is why I love Christmas. This is why Christmas for me is one of the most meaningful seasons of the year because Christmas, Christmas is the reminder that we, we have been sent one we truly need. Christmas answers the question, if there is a God, what is he like? Not in the existential sense, but what would he be like in flesh and blood? What is he like? Isaiah, a man who lived about 700 years before Jesus stepped into human history, ended up wanting to reveal to Israel what God is like and what the one he would send would be like. And he ends up describing in various parts some things that I'd like us to explore. If you open up your handout, we're going to discover Isaiah's answers, God's answer to this question through Isaiah. And we'll just read in Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This, this is an illusion, an image used. Jesse is the father of David, the most celebrated king of Israel. And this idea of a shoot coming from a stump is Isaiah's way of saying, the, mo- the man who is being sent, the one who is being sent, the one we need, will be a descendant of David. He will be of royal lineage. He will be a ruler king. He will be a leader. And the spirit, verse 2, of the Lord shall rest upon him. The divine nature of God will be upon him. And this is what he will be. These are the qualities that he will form him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel. Like a counselor who can give safe guidance and is safe to approach. And might. He is safe and he is strong. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, that is knowledge rooted in a deep reverence for God. His his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, the reverence of God, and he shall not judge by what he sees, his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Isaiah is essentially saying this leader that will step into human history will be one who is able to lead, not limited by the things we are limited by, that is by what we see and by what we hear. But this one will be able to step in and actually, actually provide true equality. And it's represented by, he will be the one who will be the defender. He will actually be able to protect the meek and the poor, the most vulnerable among us, is what Isaiah is saying. 
The word judge is not meant to be seen as negative. It's meant to be seen as accurate. An accurate assessment. He truly will be able to make it. And he says, this, this person shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And this next phrase might take us aback. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And what he is, Isaiah, saying here is what, what humanity is used to is a ruler that conquers with what? With sword and military might. Who overcomes with sword and violence. And Isaiah says, no, the one that is going to be sent is one who will step in and he will conquer he will remove the power of all, that, all of those who oppose everything that is good and right and just and pure and beautiful. Not with sword or military might, but with the power of his word. His words will have enormous effect. A leader like this We've never known outside of Jesus. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Justice shall be his clothing is the idea. And then look at this. It's difficult for us to, to go here with Isaiah. If, if he is inspiring us in terms of the qualities of this leader, he quickly leaves us and he send, it's almost as if he goes into another world because then he starts describing the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf with the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, by which we say, where is this child's parents? Uh, this is deeply concerning, right? says, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, that is the poisonous snake's den. What is Isaiah describing here? Many believe Isaiah is describing the finality of what Jesus steps into the earth to do. That the final place, the landing place of what Jesus stepped into the earth to do is that the world will know peace that is simply unfathomable. That we would consider impossible. And if that's the case, if this is the final destination of human history, this place of, because we sit there and we say, okay, we were with you, Isaiah, and then you left us. Where did you go? It's clearly you're not describing earth. And if he is describing where it is inevitably going, he is saying there is one who is going to be sent who can do the impossible. And if he can do the impossible in the physical world, can we hear it? He first starts by doing the impossible in the spiritual world. And if he can bring peace between predator and prey, well then he, if no one else can do that, then he alone can bring peace within the human heart where there is so much, so much turmoil and conflict, contradiction and tension. If this is describing the physical destination, it is describing the spiritual beginning of what he came to do. Because this is not 
real world today. We, we would look in vain to try to find something like this. I, listen, I, I've owned a cat for nearly seven years, and by, by, I, I do mean my wife, you know. I love my wife, uh, so I like the cat. And we've had this cat as I've become more affectionate with it because this year we ended up getting a dog. And um, uh, the term, uh, fighting like cats and dogs, it's real. Uh, <laughs> It happens. Um, it's not just a you know metaphor. It's true, and I've seen it. I've seen it. And what's surprising to me is that the it's not the it's not the dog picking on the cat. It's not the cat running away. It's the dog crying and, and running, uh, <laughs> wondering what's happening. And you know, which has given me an enormous amount of respect for this cat. I mean, <laughs> it has it has staked its ground and let know who is boss. But you see this, right? And you would say, well, wherever he, the one we need is invited into, well, this becomes a growing reality. And, we, you know, the real, I would say my home, uh, we, we, we have welcomed him in and nothing happens that, in that way. But you know what has happened? If it doesn't happen in the physical, it does happen in the heart. What we might sense is impossible in the world around us. It is possible in the world within us. This is what Isaiah is saying. A leader like this we have never known. He is the one we need. And he continues in Isaiah 42 to describe. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Justice, by the way, that begins in the human heart. And the coastlands wait for his law. All of creation waits for him to fulfill what he has begun to do. And what Isaiah is, what is he essentially explaining? If there is a God of the universe that is bigger and larger, that is infinite, we are finite, that are, is all intellectual and all powerful, what is he like? Because our fear is whether or not he is safe. And Isaiah says, listen, a bruised reed, he will not toss out and replace it. A withering flame, our deepest fear is that it would be blown out. Isaiah says, no, 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 no. He will demonstrate, actually, that he is tenacious in his gentleness. He is committed. He will not be discouraged. And he will, he will restore. This is what he's like. And in a poetic way, he ends up giving this servant a voice in Isaiah 50. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. This would be Jesus speaking thinking these words. I turn not back. I turn not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. It is impossible to read this and not see Jesus stepping into the moments of the cross. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint that is determined, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Isaiah is saying, rejection, human brutality, complete Evil is unable to dissuade him from the reason for which he came. If a verbal rejection pushes us away, physical brutality is unable to stop him from moving into what he was supposed to do. 
He is the one we need. And then the last, which ends up being Jesus's, some have called it mission statement. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That is, He has, he has uh, appointed me and equipped me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And upon reading these words, Jesus, at the age of around 30 years old, ends up rolling up the scroll, giving it back to the leader of the synagogue, sits down, and he gives what I believe is the shortest sermon ever. He sits there, he looks intently at the audience, and he tells them, in this moment, as you see me, this, world is, this word is fulfilled. He had no question about who he was, his identity, or why he came. If there is a God, what is he like? What does he say? He is one who gives good news to the poor. He is one who binds up the brokenhearted. He is one who proclaims liberty and opens up prison doors to the bound. That is Christmas. If that is Christmas, what implications does this have for us personally? Wherever we might be in our journey of faith, whether exploring or whether we've been walking for some time, I think, firstly, we need to understand that what Isaiah is speaking into is the deepest parts of who we are. See, our soul craves security. Our soul craves security that is ultimately found in the character of Jesus. This is not meant to say that anything else is unimportant. No, our bodies need food and water and oxygen. We need clothing. We need a roof over our heads. We need a vocation to be able to uh, explore our creativity and our skills and our gifts and to contribute to the world. We need that. We need relationships in which we are loved and we love. We need these things. No question about it. This is why we've been put here. But what Isaiah is speaking into is that our soul craves our soul, that is the immaterial part of who we are, which let us never forget we are, as Pastor Terry has oftentimes said, we are spiritual beings on a human journey. And there is a part of us that nothing physical is able to satisfy. And yet it does not prevent us from trying. And it, I, don't, I think it's because of the culture we live in. I think it's because of the way, the day in and day out of how we live our lives. But a lot of times it's very easy for us to crave. And we understand the craving for security and safety, stability. And it's why a lot of times some of us, some of us would say it is our financial health. If our financial health is okay, we are okay. Other of us, we would say if, if we, our, our physical health is okay, then we are okay. Some of us, if our capacities are still with us and our intellect and our capability to push forward is okay, we are okay. And perhaps this is why I'm drawn to the older generations because I have a grandfather who's 89 years old. I see him quite a bit and whenever I do see him, I ask him, Grandpa, how are you doing? And he only speaks Spanish and he says, Ay, hijo. She means, oh, son, growing old ain't easy. But God is good. Because I've noticed time has a way of demonstrating the instability of anything else we try to situate our feet on. And when it starts to demonstrate to us that 
nothing we actually are capable of doing is permanent in this life. I was with a group of friends. There was somebody among us who was, um, would not call themselves a follower of Jesus yet. I asked them, hey, what would you say is your deepest need? I know, very surface level question. He says, man, that's, uh, I don't get asked that every day. I said, all right, no worries. Kept talking, just went back to lighthearted joking, ended up eating. And later on in the conversation, I said, I went back to it. I said, you know what? I'll tell you what. For me, I would say my deepest need right now is I need courage. And somebody else decided to share, and somebody else decided to share, and ended up in a moment of raw honesty, just ends up stepping in and says, you know, I, um, I need acceptance. Our needs will drive our behavior. Our needs will drive us to do what it is we do, to seek what it is we seek. And God knows this about us. And you know what? He doesn't mock us. He doesn't ridicule us. He doesn't reject us. No. He knows the deepest needs of our soul. And what does he do? He sends us the one who is trustworthy. He sends us the one we truly need. And when we embrace him, when we discover the beauty of this individual, the amazing capacity of the resilience of this person, we end up understanding that our sense of courage, it stems from his commitment, not our capacity. Courage is an elusive thing. It comes like the wind. It comes and goes. And it really depends on the circumstances we find ourselves in or how we might, confident we might feel about our capacities. It is somewhat elusive. And what we start to discover is that as we invite the one we need into our lives, more and more our courage will stem from his commitment to us, not our ability. And this is huge. This is huge. This is why, personally, I love Jesus. Because what he demonstrated when he stepped into the world was not simply his own strength. He demonstrated what it would look like. He modeled what it's like to be human in need of courage. Drawing it from his father. And Isaiah spoke into it. If you look at Isaiah 50, verse 7, after describing the amazing pain and rejection he would walk through, what does he say in verse 7? But the Lord God helps me. Which Jesus ends up echoing to his own disciples when he stands there and he tells them, you think I'm alone? I am not alone. I'm doing this because my father is with me. He's with me. And what we end up discovering is maybe not immediately, maybe not right away, is that our sense of courage grows from his commitment to us. I wonder, I'd like us to do something we rarely do. In fact, we just don't do it that much. But I, I wonder if we could ask the question just internally within ourselves, where is it that we actually need courage right now? What situation do we need courage in? And I wonder if we could, with that on our mind, just say this verse 7 out loud, that first phrase. Where do we need courage? Can we could just claim this? But the Lord God helps me. 
Let's try it. But the Lord God helps me. I'm overwhelmed, but the Lord God helps me. I'm afraid, but the Lord God helps me. I don't really know what is going to happen here, but the Lord God helps me. I want to quit, but the Lord God helps me. I want to run away, but the Lord God helps me. This feels like a mountain, but the Lord God helps me. He is committed to me. And because he is committed to me, I will set my face like a flint, determined. And I will take one step forward, yes, with fear, but he helps me. He helps me. He stabilizes me. He grips me. He holds me through this. And he will see me to the other side. That is one of the most amazing promises and realities that God extends to us, especially as we consider that Jesus is the one we need. We declare it in the face of our struggles, the Lord God helps me. And in due time, what ends up occurring in our lives is that our lives become an extension of his presence in us. This is, if the miracle of Christmas is that God sent his very own son into human existence, the miracle continues in the reality that wherever Jesus is welcome, to hear something about Jesus is that his love is contagious. And we can't help but catch it. And his character is contagious. And our soul can't help but be infected by it in the best way possible. And all of a sudden, something within our soul starts to be reformed, renovated, renewed by what he gives to us. This is the reality. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a stretch of time. And everyone's journey is different in this regard. But we understand that the, the faith God gives us, the, the ability to draw from his strength and to draw from his grace is something that ends up inevitably converting us into people. The goodness of God shows up in our lives. When we start to recognize that we who are full of contradictions and weaknesses and frustrations, we who are fragile as can be, we who are deeply sensitive and we know it, we who are in deep need end up becoming people who other people around us end up seeing as the ones they need. And we start to become the people that others say, you know what, I, I, need, I need you. I've come to need you. I've come to under, understand you, I need your encouragement. I need your strength. I need you to be reliable. I need you. I, I've come to depend on you. And if that happens to us, which it does, it is his way with us. He longs to, he, we become the beautiful tapestry of his grace. And when that happens, our story, our privilege is to be able to say, yes, you might, yes, I understand what you're saying, but listen, let me tell you, let me tell you of the one who met my needs. Let me tell you of the one who has met the deepest cravings of my soul. Let me tell you of him. And we get to be the ones who get to introduce others to the one we need. And we get to recognize he converts us into his messengers. We get to answer, we get to be the answer to the question. If there is a God, is he good? 
What is he like? If there is a God, this is what he's like. And his name is Jesus. He's the one we need. I pray that as we step into this Christmas season, he would be the one who is welcomed. He would be the one who is celebrated and embraced. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving, our closing song. But I would like to pray, ask for his blessing. God, I thank you. I thank you that you know us. You know us very well. The psalmist says that you know we are made of dust. I thank you, God, that you don't, you don't mock us or shame us. Your son stepped into the world and said he did not come to condemn the world, but that through him the world might have life everlasting. I pray, God, that wherever we might be in this journey of ours, that you would help us receive you into our lives. You would give us the courage we need. I pray, God, that if there are any of us who end up becoming those who get to be your mouthpiece, your hands and feet, you would give us the words. You would give us the actions that we would be able to declare with our lives and our words. Jesus, you are the one we need. Jesus, you are welcomed here. I pray for that in your name.